Hello, and welcome to episode 66 of the Movie Marathoners podcast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mati, and joining me today, returning to the podcast, is Brett Bohan from Bohan Reviews. Welcome back to the podcast, Brett. How's this fall season been for you? Uh, it's not been bad. I've been, you know that uh, that meme of the dog uh, sitting at the kitchen table with a cup of coffee and everything's on fire around him? Yeah. And he's just saying, this is fine. It's kind of how it feels uh, right <laughs> now. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I went back and I, I listened to our uh, the one and only Ivan uh, review and uh, just listening to, to my voice in that in that podcast, I was just like, oh, this is what a month and a half of law school does to you. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's getting under my belt and I'm getting used to it. But uh, yeah, it's still it's still a lot. So how's how's the fall season for you so far? I uh, can't complain too much in the grand scheme of things. I feel like the dog sitting in the room on fire is just what everybody feels like nowadays. So yeah. I think I'm fortunate enough that my fire is a little bit lower than the average fire so can't complain too much but um here we are fall season um we would be gearing up for oscars and award ceremony but we're kind of getting that truncated Mm -hmm. slash elongated slash who knows what's happening but we've got a great movie here and it will probably contend for oscars so let's start talking about it um you alluded to previously brett that you were on the podcast for the one and only ivan uh we also reviewed before that artemis fowl I actually liked The One and Only Ivan, but you weren't too hot on either of those films. So hopefully we're changing the tide this week uh, because we are reviewing Aaron Sorkin's new Netflix film, The Trial of the Chicago 7. We'll warm up by giving our spoiler-free thoughts on the film, and then we'll run into spoiler territory. And as usual, we'll finish up with our point two section where we talk about what else we've been watching. So let's start with a synopsis of The Trial of the Chicago 7. The story of seven people on trial stemming from various charges surrounding the uprising at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, Illinois. Illinois. Whoops. The trial of the Chicago 7 stars just about everyone. We've got Sasha Baron Cohen, (laughs) Eddie Redmayne, Jeremy Strong, Mark Rylance, and Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, just to name a few. And it is written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. When we walked in here this morning, they were chanting that the whole world is watching. If we leave here without saying anything about why we came in the first place, it'll be heartbreaking. Last summer, why did you come to the convention? To end the war. We're giving them exactly what they want, a stage and an audience. Yeah, you really think there's going to be a big audience? Here I This is what revolution looks like, real revolution. We may have to hurt somebody's feelings. Is this prosecution politically motivated? I'm tired of hearing you. It would be impossible for me to care any less what you are tired of. Here I am. There will be more. We have to find some courage now. How much is it worth to you? What's your price? To call off the revolution? My life. So, Brad, I don't want to bury the lead here. I'm just dying to know, did we break the streak? Did you enjoy the trial of the Chicago 7? I did enjoy the trial of the yes. Chicago 7. <laughs> uh, and so, yes, we did finally break the streak of, of movies that I didn't quite care for. Um, but I do know, uh, or I'm, I'm fairly certain that I'm a little lower on this one than you are still. So we there's still room for improvement, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. And... Um, I should get it out of the way. I loved this movie. Uh, I thought it was definitely one of the best movies of the year, if not the best movie of the year. And maybe that's a bit hyperbolic, but who cares? We're in quarantine. I can be hyperbolic if I want to. Um, (laughs) I mean, the way this year has been so far anyway, especially in terms of movies and just the wildly swinging, you know, how how good the movies are Mm -hmm. i i feel like it i feel like it's okay to be a little hyperbolic yeah and i mean in the grand scheme of movie years it's kind of a low bar to clear to be one of the best movies of the year (laughs) just because there's been like seven movies this year but before i talk a little bit about why i love it so much let me just ask you are an educated individual with uh, who is pursuing a degree in 
lawyership. Is that what you call it? I don't know. But <laughs> was this a story that you were previously aware of? Like, does the Chicago Seven mean something to you outside of this story? Uh, no, I, I hadn't. I hadn't heard of this before, and it's uh, it's kind of surprising that I hadn't. Mm-hmm. After doing some research on it and uh, how important this event kind of is historically and, and also even in, uh, you know, even in the sphere of, of uh, you know, popular media, there have been several film versions of this that have been done before. So I, I was surprised to learn all that after having seen this, uh, but no, it wasn't something I was familiar with. Yeah, same here. This was a brand new story for me. Uh, The script for this film was actually first written in 2007, so Aaron Sorkin had been attached for a long time for this film, and it was originally going to be directed by Steven Spielberg, who I think even at these later stages was a big part of how this movie got made. But the original cast of this was going to be Sasha Baron Cohen. He was always going to be Abby Hoffman. Um, We were going to have Will Smith as Bobby Seale, and we were going to have Heath Ledger as Tom Hayden. And then um, when it was resurrected again, we were going to have Seth Rogen play Jerry Rubin, who was eventually replaced with um, Jeremy Strong. And Jonathan Majors was going to play Bobby Seale before he stepped down and uh, it was replaced with Yahya Abdul-Mateen. So this movie, I don't know if, you know, development hell is the word for it, but it took 13 years for it to get on the screen. And of course, we know that it it didn't quite make it to the screen, so to say. This is a Netflix film, but was it worth the wait? Do you want to? Do you want to just tell me a little bit about what you thought about the film? Uh, yeah. O- overall, I'm to be honest, I'm a little conflicted. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a film, I will say that I really, really liked it. I think it was just incredibly entertaining. Obviously, uh, it's Aaron Sorkin. He's got that really witty back and forth writing and and speech style. That, of course, goes really well with with this type of film. But there were there are a lot of things to like about it, but there are also a lot of things that I think I just wasn't quite uh, I wasn't quite able to connect with. And then just the more that I learned about this real story and sort of diving into uh, to the actual transcripts of the of the of the hearing of the of the trial, um, I. I sort of had trouble reconciling um, mm-hmm. the differences that, that Aaron Sorkin took with this. And um, so when I watched it on the second time round, I tried to watch it to understand why he changed the things that he did. Um, but like I said, I think it's very entertaining. I think that this is a film that is very much for today. Uh, it's very much of the time. And, and to hear that it's written from in 2007 um, it feels so timely that it it doesn't seem like it should have been uh, written that long ago. But yeah, there's a lot to like here, but I, I do have my uh, hesitation. Yeah, perfectly fair. Um, I think what really worked for me in the film was the script. And then just as a movie experience, like you're saying, I think it is just a wonderful two hours, I would say at the theaters, but, you know, on your couch, whatever it was it's a really fun film. It's a really funny film. And I think just everybody is kind of working at a hundred percent. Um, all the actors are fantastic. I think some of the accents could use a little work, but (laughs) I would say those are Boston, right? Yeah. I'm from Boston. Um, not originally. So I cannot claim to know an authentic Boston accent, but I, so the first time I watched this, I just assumed he was not from Boston. I assumed he was doing some other random ass accent that I've never heard of. And then <laughs> learning that it's a Boston accent, I'm like, okay, it's sometimes your British is coming out. But I do think that in terms of how that affects the movie, it's relatively negligible. Yeah, um, I, I, I agree. And I also think, you know, you've got great performances from Jeremy Strong. He is also doing, I wouldn't say an accent, but a voice that mm. um, sounds a little <laughs> wonky to me. Um, I've got to say, like, I don't agree with the choice that Jeremy Strong made with that voice. I don't think it worked, but he's consistent. Like, it's yeah. the same throughout the entire film. So he went with it. I just don't know if it was the right choice. Yeah, it's he's definitely doing something. And I can appreciate the choice to commit to something. 
I agree. I, I I like his performance overall, but the voice is a little weird for me. But but where I think this film just really works is that just from you know second one, it roars to life, um, and then it just doesn't slow down. Like the you've got the opening montage introducing each of the members. I think how it frames everything, regardless of whether it's historically accurate or not, which we can talk about in a bit. But mm-hmm. the way that it introduces each of the individuals in this trial and the way that it kind of juxtaposes them uh, against each other and the way that it's quickly giving you character traits for each of them, I think is just such a blast. And it all happens in like five minutes before the title card. I agree with that. And and I think, uh, I don't know if we want to get into this yet or do it a little bit later, but I think the fact that Pretty much. I mean, you get that opening sort of montage sequence with everybody preparing to go to Chicago. But other than that, this is all like in the courtroom. All of the flashback stuff is testimony that Mm -hmm. um, people are given. And so we're just thrown right into it, like you said, right from the beginning. And so, uh, you know, we don't have all of that getting set up that you often see in courtroom dramas. You just get right into the actual trial. And I think that works really well. Yeah. And I love the way that they interweave the flashbacks with the testimony. Like you're never learning something outside of a witness being on the witness stand. And I think that kind of makes, I mean, maybe you can correct me, but I think it makes um, it a little more realistic in like the proceedings of the courtroom while also still making it entertaining and uh, have drama and stakes to it because you're going back to seeing what happens you can tell who's lying on the stand because of what you're seeing in the flashbacks. All of these mm-hmm. things, I think, make for a really engaging story. And um, I think one of the great things about courtroom dramas is that at their raw essence, they are the easiest form of storytelling. You've got good guys and bad guys. And mm-hmm. there's always somebody that you know you're rooting for and there's somebody that you know you're rooting against. And this movie's no different. It's really easy to say, hey. We want to vindicate the Chicago 7. Um, there's never a question about like, oh, were they really doing the wrong thing? Um, do they deserve some of this? No, it's all like, you know, kind of fuck the government and the establishment that's uh, raining down on these individuals. And um, I mean, maybe there should be more complexity. But for me, that's why I kind of love the courtroom drama and why I think this movie works really well. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, as far as being able to correct you or not, I haven't uh, I haven't taken a civil procedure or a criminal <laughs> procedure or a trial advocacy class yet. So uh, I don't have all of that uh, sort of stuff down. The one thing that I do, will say about what this film does is I do appreciate that we get the testimony sort of juxtaposed against the reality and we get to see how uh, testimony can can be spun or just flat out lying uh, in, in order to tell a different story. And that's sort of something that I've uh, that that's that's been pressed a little bit, at least so far in law school, is that what's written in the opinion isn't always uh, the reality of the situation. And so that's something you have to keep in mind. So has being in law school already, I mean, you're only in your first year, so you've got Plenty coming to you, but has that already affected your ability to kind of suspend disbelief during courtroom dramas or legal dramas, thrillers, whatever? Um, I wouldn't say so, no, because I think a lot of what people dislike, a lot of what lawyers dislike about lawyer movies is sort of the procedural aspects of law. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, we talked about it when we were talking about A Few Good Men, when um, when Tom Cruise just rips the manual out of uh, the other lawyer's hands, uh, that would clearly never happen in a real courtroom. And just, right. you know, walking around uh, just doesn't really happen. Uh, you know, you do most of your argument from behind a, a podium. So, I mean, that's sort of the thing that people latch on to. And, and, and procedural stuff in this film, for sure, uh, probably irks lawyers because the procedure is is so all over the place. But I also... You know, looking at the transcripts um, and just based on how story actually went, it doesn't sound like a lot of procedure <laughs> was followed very well anyway. Uh, so I, I think, you know, maybe this is one uh, that you might get angry with as a lawyer, but I'm not sure that it's valid. Um, 
but you know it's still it's still early on so uh right now i can still enjoy illegal dramas but we'll see uh you know in three years if that's still the case yeah i i think it's really funny how um unprocedural the characters act in this movie and i think that's part of the fun of this movie and seeing the people kind of berate the judge who for in my opinion is probably the most frustrating and hated hateful judge <laughs> um in any uh-huh. movie that i've seen i can't really think of another one no, i definitely i would agree and i think you know that's partially because this judge is very involved and i don't I can't think of another time when a judge in a movie has been so involved in the proceedings. Yeah, the closest one that I can think of is the judge from My Cousin Vinny, who is not a particularly bad person. I would argue that in the way that it's perceived in this movie, the Franklin Gella judge is a bad and racist person. Um, Mm -hmm. The judge in My Cousin Vinny is very traditional and butts against, uh, what is his name? Uh, Joe Pesci, Joe Pesci's character um, and his kind of more laid back style but this guy is i mean it's a fantastic performance from franklin gella but he is so horrible so quickly and mm-hmm. it's actually amazing looking back at some of the records and seeing that some of the moments in this movie are things that he actually did yeah i mean yeah, we'll get into specifics i'm sure but i i agree just it's it's so it's so evil. It's so villainous that it's almost like cartoonish. But then yeah. <laughs> when you learn about it, it, you realize that it was it was real. This is true. This actually happened. And he was this evil. And there's just that's it's hard to sort of uh, to accept it he, when you're watching the movie the first time. I think almost I think it can it could be a little distracting to viewers mm-hmm. uh, for him to be so villainous if you know nothing about this and you don't know that that's really how it went uh you know i think people could be distracted by how cartoonish he almost seems so i i almost think that maybe coming into it it would be helpful to to do a little brushing up and get a little knowledge of this story so that you're not sort of blindsided by that in the same way the uh abby hoffman character played by sasha baron cohen and the jerry rubin character are almost so cartoonishly hippie that Mm -hmm. you think that some of the things they do have to be completely made up but there are actual things that happen in this movie that actually happened um and we'll talk about those in spoilers but yeah it is it is pretty crazy that some of this stuff did actually happen um but you mentioned that you looked into the transcripts and you kind of saw the more complex story that the trial of the chicago seven is and obviously all movies have to take liberties but Aaron Sorkin is particularly, I don't know if notorious is the right word, but um, he is well known to take great liberties to tell a story. Like Social Network is mm-hmm. not at all how that story went down. But is that something that's important for you in movies like this? Is it important for a historical drama to be more or less factual? Or do you think it's okay for them to take liberties just to tell a story? Like it's clear that Sorkin is doing in this movie. Well, I mean, I think, you know, you look at The Social Network and that's universally praised and I think it's a great film myself. Um, And it does take liberties. Uh, I I think that when you look at this film, um, I think that it it does take quite a few liberties. And I don't necessarily have issues with that because I understand uh, watching when I watched it again, I understand a lot of the reason why it went the way it did. But I also, there's a lot that I don't understand why it, why it chose to do it the way it did mm-hmm. or why it chose not to explain things when it could have. And I think those, in my mind, if I can't explain it, if I can't explain the reason that you deviated from reality and you, it, it, like it doesn't serve the story and it's not more entertaining, then I don't see why you did it and and for me it's hard to justify that and so i think that that becomes an issue uh but you know when it serves a purpose when it's doing something to an end uh that this filmmaker is trying to get at then i then i understand it but i do at the same time sort of feel like this film is trying Mm -hmm. to present itself as fact Mm -hmm. and um i think that you need to be aware <laughs> coming into this that this is an interpretation of these events, uh, not 
what actually happened. Um, and so I think that's uh, difficult. That was a difficulty for me with this film in particular. Do you have any general, non-specific, non-spoiler examples of that? I'm just curious about like uh, what what exactly you mean. But we can obviously talk about it more in spoilers. Yeah, we might have to wait till spoilers because I think anything that I might say would be sort of on the edge okay. <laughs> of, of spoilers, and I don't want to really. I don't want to, you know, maybe slip and give something away. So. Okay, cool. Well, uh, let's go ahead and just kind of coast into spoilers then. Um, before we do, I do want to say that um, even though I, I absolutely do adore this movie, one of the things that I felt was weakest about the movie was the very end of it and how it kind of just ends in a way. And I think back to a lot of legal dramas and courtroom dramas and things even like this year, like Just Mercy, that kind of end with a bang and end with a way that makes you feel like like the the impact of the story has a legacy that we're still feeling. And whether this actual trial does or does not have that, I'm sure it does, the movie doesn't really present it as such. It, it kind of just says, here's this story, this is the end, this is what happened to a couple of the characters, and then it it doesn't really have any, like, great thing to say at the end there's it's it's sort of like okay so what and that doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. mean it's a bad movie but i did feel that it was kind of jarring to feel like the ultimate message of this movie which and i agree i do think that there is a message here and there is stuff to be said that's interesting but it's almost like secondhand to just this is where we want to end the story because this is the end of the like entertainment part and we just came to entertain for two hours. I That's sort of something I guess I'll point to um, with what's different between reality and the film. Mm -hmm. uh, and I obviously we can talk more about the ending and, and spoilers, but the real closing arguments that uh, Kunstler gives, uh, like it's, it's very eloquent. It's a quote from Clarence Darrow. Um, and it speaks very much to the time that we're living in today. So it almost feels like the real ending of this case makes more sense to have been the <laughs> ending of the movie. Um, and so that it does, it is, it, it's strange to me why they chose to end the way they did. Yeah. I don't totally know why either. I, I guess the one thing that I would say is that it, it's an easy power moment, you know, um, mm -hmm. and definitely the way that this movie is structured is that it's not even like we haven't even talked about how Joseph Gordon-Levitt is the prosecutor of this case. Mm -hmm. And in the film, he's not really the villain. The prosecution is not really the villain. Uh, well, at least George, Joseph Gordon-Levitt isn't. And it's more this like establishment that is kind of the villain yeah. and then the judge manifesting that. So the end of this movie is definitely a fuck you to the judge which feels really good <laughs> given what we just mm -hmm. watched for two hours because he's an awful, awful character. But um, yeah, it, 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 there isn't a ton of like justice in that closing statement. I don't know. I, I, I do think like it's, it's, this is not a perfect film by any mean, but I, I do really love it. Do you want to go ahead and just wrap up your thoughts and then we'll hop into spoilers. And uh, before we do that, just give a score out of 10. So uh, as far as, the film goes, um, I think it's really entertaining. Like I said earlier, I think it's really fun. Uh, there's there's so much funny dialogue, witty dialogue, clever dialogue um, that's just mm -hmm. really entertaining to uh, to just listen to. Um, and, and, you know, regardless of what it's actually saying, it's just fun. Um, and I do think that there is something deeper to it at the same time. Um, I, I will agree with your point. I do think that the ending of this film is easy. And I had that sort of complaint a little bit with the film in general. I think mm -hmm. occasionally it takes the easy way out or it does something very easy rather than uh, trying to look at this situation in maybe a little bit more complicated of a way. Usually, sometimes it does go into that. And I think that's sort of the problem for me <laughs> with this film, considering some of Aaron Sorkin's previous works, is that he has done things that are more complex than this and that, that speak to something in a more uh, complicated and engaging way. 
uh, and, and to see this sort of miss the mark a few times, uh, I think that 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 was difficult for me. So uh, I that all that being said, I do really like this film. This is easily the best film that we've reviewed together. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> there's that. So um, in the end, I think I'll give it an eight out of ten. Yeah, I'm going to echo most of that. I think um, the one thing I want to say about that, like the idea that this movie takes kind of the easy way out is uh, I agree with that assessment. And for me, that's sort of what I wanted out of this in a way, because I just, you know, it's just an entertaining movie and it's it's easy to feel good in this movie. And in that way, I think this movie is actually an excellent Oscar movie because most Oscar movies are really easy and they kind of feign mm-hmm. importance. Not that this isn't an important story, but this movie does kind of have this false idea of importance. Um, in the same way that something, actually, I, I don't. I'm not going to compare it to the the GB, but um, because <laughs> it's not that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not problematic in in ways. But I just do think that like this is going to be very well liked by the Academy because it does kind of feel like an of-the-time movie, even if it's not saying everything that it could. But regardless of that, like Brett said, the it's funny, it's clever, um, the acting is fantastic. I just really love it, and I really am excited to watch it again and again. So I'm going to give it a 9.5 out of 10. Um, so with that, let's go ahead and take a break here, and when we return, we'll hop into spoilers. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place. The sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work, and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com Okay, so we're back. And with that is your spoiler warning for The Trial of the Chicago 7 starting now. That's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. So, Brett, I want to throw it to you right away and just ask, what are some of those specific moments that you thought were kind of weird that they changed from the actual trial proceedings? Uh, So I think that the biggest thing, the, the couple of things, I guess, that I would focus on are the order of events. Um, and so things happened in the trial in a very different order than they happened in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I guess I was a little confused why they ended up going the way they did. And, and I, I get to some extent having Abby Hoffman on stand at the end, uh, being that final thing, that final moment. Uh, I mean, not the end end, but having him have sort of the final say. But, you know, overall, they just sort of it it felt like they didn't have to do things the way they did or they just created. He just created some things like uh, Attorney General Clark. He was always on the defendant list. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, uh, apparently the the defense actually tried to subpoena President Johnson. Uh, he, he didn't he didn't do it he didn't appear but (laughs) (laughs) apparently they tried to do that um and and just like i think this film tried to make it seem more clear-cut than it was uh especially with attorney general clark's testimony because in reality it's never said like in the actual transcript and he never comes out and actually says hey uh we weren't going to Mm-hmm. Uh, we weren't going to charge these people. We found that the police uh, had done it. Like it never gets that far in the actual uh, in the actual trial because the prosecution just keeps objecting and objecting and objecting, and he can't actually get a question that the prosecution and the judge will allow him to answer. And so, uh, 
I just, I don't see the point of making it so clear cut, except unless you're just trying to spin this story, uh, to, to tell the story you want it to tell. Because I think having the prosecution just object over and over and over again gets the same point across. Mm-hmm. Um, it might not be like as huge of a moment, but it, it just felt like you're trying to turn the story into something that it wasn't. And that was difficult for me. Um, as far as the Bobby Seal thing where his lawyer, you know, he he was sick. Um, and that's that's real. That mm-hmm. happened. But um, as far as the case, there seems to be and I only looked over the case for like three hours. It's 22,000 pages long. So clearly <laughs> I didn't get through the whole thing. Um, but it seems to be that there's some sort of procedural thing going on underneath this that's beyond just this argument of constitutionality. And I wish that the film had addressed that because I think in Bobby Seale's appeal, he he does get it overturned. Like it didn't, it was procedurally procedurally wrong to not allow him to have his lawyer, but there was something in the case that seemed like the judge felt like he was justified by law of doing it. And I felt like in the film, it just seemed like he was being ridiculous. And Mm -hmm. I wish that maybe something more had been addressed there rather than just trying to make the judge look like a clown, I guess. Um, Because it just, it was something that just confused me when I was watching the film rather than maybe made me laugh like it was supposed to. And so those are just like a few things that I noticed quickly reading through. But a lot of this, a lot of the testimony is taken straight from the case. So there are like there are word for word excerpts that are in the film. Yeah. So like when Justice Hoffman clarifies that he and Abby Hoffman have no relation and then Abby Hoffman says, father, no, like that actually (laughs) happened. I read about that's. That seems like something that is so ridiculous that if it was in a fictional story, people would be like, that's pretty unrealistic. And it actually happened. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's for sure true. But even looking like at more dark things, like uh, when when the judge says, take him into another room and deal with him as he should be or, or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, that that's word for word what he legitimately said to these bailiffs when he when they dragged Bobby Seal out of the courtroom. So yeah, I do think that the Bobby Seal character in general and how this movie treats him is um very cut and dry or it's it's very simplified. And mm-hmm. I think the reason for that is that there is so much more going on just not not even just like procedurally but also just like the idea that Bobby Seale is in jail and all the white defendants get to be off on bail and all Mm -hmm. these clearly systematically racist things that are in place here are just barely mentioned. And to, I guess, in defense of Aaron Sorkin is that that's not the story that he necessarily wants to or is capable of telling. Um, Mm -hmm. But that does definitely feel like something that was sidelined in this movie. And that's where a lot of the nuance could have come from this story and could have been a bit more effective, I think, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think there are some good moments that arise yeah. from that, but I, I agree. I think it's, it's very much something that Aaron Sorkin seems to have wanted to address. It seems to have wanted to say something about it, but also uh, sort of say, this isn't the story that I'm, that I'm trying to tell. And so Bobby Seale, leaves and sort of the presence of any black actors also leaves uh, from the film. And I I think that's uh, it's definitely a difficult thing to accept. I think when you're watching this film is that, you know, he's there and then he's gone. And then any presence of sort of diversity also uh, disappears from this film. Uh, I would like to believe. And I, uh, I, I mean, he's been, uh, writing sociopolitical commentaries for longer than I've been alive. Um, so I would hope <laughs> that he's, he's um, sort of trying to, to be tactful and respectful rather than try to get into this, uh, this conversation that he, like you said, isn't really equipped to have. 
Yeah, there's one moment that I thought really stood out to me with the Bobby Seal character on the second watch that I didn't really think about on the first watch, and that's the scene when um, Kunstler and Tom go visit him in prison to tell him that his friend has been murdered, and um, Bobby Seal directly addresses Tom and said, you guys all have the same father. All you white people, like, you are doing this as a fuck you to your father, and Tom admits yeah, it's it's a little bit that, and and then Bobby Seal says this fantastic line that's like, you see how that's different than a rope in a tree, right? And mm-hmm. that line alone just gets into something that could be an entire movie in it, in and of itself. Like the difference between um, these people who are trying to fight the Vietnam War versus what the Black Panthers and MLK were doing. And just that idea is something that this movie just barely touches and I could see why people might be frustrated that that's not the main focus of this story, because that is, in a lot of ways, the most interesting part of this whole thing. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think that. But again, I think, like I said, I think that Aaron Sorkin just didn't. That wasn't yeah. his story. And I think that maybe, hopefully, uh, someday someone who can tell that story will. Um, and then maybe we'll have a, another Another trial of the Chicago Seven that we can <laughs> we can watch. Yeah, yeah. The what I do like that this film focuses more on is the uh, the war of ideals between Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman. I think all of that is really fascinating, and I I just love how both of them can be right and both of them can be wrong, and the movie doesn't necessarily tell you this person's right, this person's wrong. It's it's more nuanced than that. I like that. Uh, yeah, I agree. That's another uh, sort of uh, that's something that is different um, from reality. That was something that made sense to change um, between uh, the film and real life so that you could have these two sort of competing forces that are going toward the same end goal, but have very different ideas of how you should get there um, in the the difficulties that each side has and what's right about each side and what's Mm -hmm. wrong about each side, um, like you said. And so, you know, you get that final confrontation between the two of them where they sort of air it all out. And uh, that sort of shows even that there's a divide within um, our different ideologies and there's all of these divides that we we all have and maybe we need to just (laughs) be able to, to look at each other and understand you know where we're all coming from and the differences that we bring um and i think that that's probably the most effective part of this film is Mm -hmm. sort of the two of them and so i know you said you had a question on the 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 prep sheet i guess for this (laughs) um where you you asked uh who what two actors would i pick if uh, if they you know if only two could be award contenders and I think that's the reason why I would pick Eddie Redmayne and Sasha Baron Cohen, because I think they represent the ideologies that are central to this film. Um, and I think they do a really good job on top of that. But I think that that they're the the main idea that this film is trying to get across. Would, do you think they would do best actors for both of them and compete against each other? Or can one be a supporting actor? I don't know. I think everyone in this film is a supporting actor, to be honest. I don't know that anyone is lead, but those two, I think, would be the closest thing you could you could call to a lead actor. Mm-hmm. Who knows? I'm not even going to try to figure that out. <laughs> I think it kind of just depends on what the studio wants to run them as, to be honest. Like, these award contention things are bullshit. Like <laughs> sometimes there's a supporting actor that's clearly a lead and other times there's a lead actor that's clearly supporting. But I think they'll definitely, I think Sasha Baron Cohen is the runaway, like one who could actually do something from this movie in terms of the acting noms. I think he's fantastic. And so that would be my first pick. And then actually my second pick is going to be Frank Langella, just because I think what he's doing as the judge is fantastic. Um, you know, it's it's a cliche to say that, like, the movie's only as good as its villain, but <laughs> you need that performance to be despisable for this yeah. movie to work. So I think I think it's a fantastic performance. I just wanted to, like, in these in, in spoilers, I just wanted to mention some, like, absolutely amazing lines 
that are in this movie because mm-hmm. I think uh, specifically the Mark Rylance character has just some fantastic little clapbacks that are just so funny. And I love so much of the dialogue in this movie. Some of my favorite ones are when they're all complaining about replacing the juror that essentially the uh, the prosecution kind of threatened and, and removed. Mark Rylance asks or says, raise your hand if you've ever shown up to jury duty. No, then shut the fuck up. And <laughs> just just the way that he's so comfortable with telling like the people he's working for to shut the fuck. It's so funny. That's one of my favorite lines in the whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> and then he also has a line to the woman who works at the conspiracy office uh, where she says, most people are smart. And he says, if you believe that, you'll be heartbroken every day of your life. <laughs> And I think that's good good advice to to live by I in these times. <laughs> yeah. Uh Lee Weiner has a couple a couple, you know, for a character who has like maybe five lines in the whole film, he has yeah. a, a couple really good lines. I know you had one written down. Yeah, the uh, go ahead, do you want to take it? No, you go ahead. Cuz it's not the one I'm thinking of. Well, so there's a moment when um the judge Hoffman feels like he is being accused of racism by Mark Rylance's character. And he says that, you know, I've been practicing law for 25 years and this is the first time that anyone has ever accused me of racism. And then without step, classic Aaron Sorkin, Lee Weiner, like second defender, says, then let the record show that I am the second. And it's just, it's so vindicating. Just the way that Frank Langella looks after that, like he's just (laughs) been kind of like, no one has ever talked to him like that. It's so good. And you know people like that too, you know? Like there are people that just are so blind to not even explicit racism, even though this guy is very clearly explicitly racist. But like so many people are like, oh, I've never been called racist. I can't believe you're doing <laughs> Such a good clapback. I loved it. Yeah. What's your line? Um, so yeah, that's actually Wineglass's co-counsel. Um, but Weiner is one of the defendants. Oh. Whoops. Oh, wait, did I pull a did I pull a Judge Hoffman and say the wrong name? Yes. You did. <laughs> My bad. I was talking about wine glass. You're right. You're you're talking about one of the defendants, Weiner. Sorry, continue. <laughs> uh, so they have that they have that confrontation and then uh, uh, Jeremy Strong's character. I can't remember anybody's names right now for some reason. <laughs> he talks about the Jack and the Beanstalk and uh, they're all arguing about this and he's like, you know, they might, the giant might have ate him at the end. And then the other guy's like, no, I think the giant was nice. And then Lee Weiner's like, I don't, I, I don't remember the exact words, but he said, it was something like, I can't imagine how we weren't able to stop. The seven of us weren't able to stop a war. Yeah. <laughs> it is really, yeah, yeah. I love that Weiner character because he's so, like you said, he's got five lines and this is probably confusing for people who are listening because I completely mixed up the two characters. But the Weiner character, the line that I have written for him that you're referring to is when there's just a montage of all the informants that are testifying on him and it gets oh, cut yeah. back to like all the people that are like, yo, I'm your guy for booze, ass and weed. Hit me up. And then it's <laughs> it just cuts immediately to that guy on the stand and he's like, I'm the police officer for the Chicago 7th District or whatever. And it is so funny. But at the very end of this whole montage of all these informants, the Weiner character turns to his friend and says, do you think it's possible that there were seven demonstrators in Chicago last summer leading 10,000 undercover cops in protest? (laughs) (laughs) I just I rolled laughing the first time. Yeah, I think that. That's one of my favorite parts about this film. That was definitely the dialogue. And you've got great actors who are able to deliver the dialogue really well. Mm-hmm. It just, it, like I said, it's just so much fun. Yeah. And, and that's, I think that's the ultimate thing about this movie, the ultimate recommendation. And I think for like a time like now, you keep saying it's of the moment, but even just in terms of like feeling good in a movie, can't take away that feeling. I, so this is a great movie for, in my opinion. <laughs> The one thing that I will say about this, I guess, uh, and and if we wanted to talk more, we can afterward or whatever. But mm-hmm. I think that this is a film that there is so much going on in this to just in terms of 
the filmmaking quality in terms of the writing, in terms of the acting. Like you can talk about it as a film and you can appreciate those aspects of it. But there's also a lot you can talk about in this film in terms of comparing it to reality. You can, you know, there's so many different things that are different from real life and to go through all of those things and try to discern what Aaron Sorkin was thinking. Like, why did he do these things? I think that's a really interesting aspect of this. And to me, it's really fun. I mean, I don't know if fun's the right word, but <laughs> it's really fun after watching a, mo- a true story movie to kind of do that deep dive and see, you know, what the real story is and what this film was trying to do with that real story. So um, I, there's a lot to like here. And I, I just want to end on that note, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, we could easily go for the length of this movie times two and go point by point and, yeah. and talk about everything. And I, you're right. There's so much in this movie and it is trying to say so much or, I mean, I don't even know. Like, I think what's interesting about the movie is that it can say so much, but it's very clear that Aaron Sorkin made this script to be a film. And I think maybe that's a stupid thing to say. Of course he did. <laughs> of course he wrote this, the film script to be a film. But I just mean that like there is so much clear development in terms of giving us the information that we need and set up in act one and then raising the stakes in act two and then having the resolution in act three. And even if that's not quite how um, factually the story went, it it is just very clearly shaped to be a rise and fall story and and be exciting and be satisfying Um and I think that's difficult to do. I think that's one of the the hardest parts of adapting a story like this and why Aaron Sorkin is so good at these courtroom dramas. Mm-hmm. And of course, like I said, the the actual trial transcript is 22,000 pages long. So to, to get that down to two hours yeah. <laughs> with some background extraneous uh, stuff going on, you know, you got to you got to give him credit for that, at least. Yeah, I just was uh, reading up on um, the guy who wrote the Goblet of Fire screenplay. And he was like, yeah, you know, it was really hard trimming down 670 pages of the Goblet <laughs> of Fire into a two hour movie. And, and I was like, buddy, buddy, calm down. <laughs> this is 22,000 pages over here. So it, it's definitely a testament. And the fact that the movie works at all is, is great. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and move on to our point two section where we talk about some of the other stuff that we've been watching. Brett, what have you been watching other than um, The Trial of the Chicago 7? So I have been watching, and I don't know if I've told you where I'm going to law school, but I am attending law school at Notre Dame. Oh, nice. Uh, The thing that has been on literally everyone's television for the past week has been obviously the confirmation hearing for uh, Amy Coney Barrett because she was a professor here. She went here. And so I, I watched all 24 hours ish of that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's what I've been watching. I won't get into my thoughts about, you know, should she be, should they even be having this, uh, the hearing or should she be confirmed? But, uh, yeah, I, I will say that, um, it's not something I would recommend <laughs> to anyone, uh, <laughs> to ever sit and watch. 24 hours of a Senate confirmation hearing because uh, politicians are the worst. But, um, and then also this weekend, I did get the chance to watch a couple of films from uh, the Middleburg Film Festival. So I watched Wolf Walkers, um, which is an animated film. Oh, nice. How was that? Uh, it was. I thought it was really good, and I, I'll say that I definitely noticed that there are some flaws in it. It has some some familiarity to sort of fantastical animated films. Mm-hmm. But it is a very, it's not, I won't say unique, I guess, uh, art style, but it's, it's very different from what we normally see in terms of art style. Uh, I really like sort of this fantastical, this historical uh, Gaelic element, because it's an Irish it's an Irish story that it's telling and uh, it, it's just, it's a really touching film and it, it takes a lot of steps that I guess you'll expect 
um, coming into it, but I think it does it really well. And um, it has like a nice central message there. Uh, it's, it's very, it's almost Pixar-y, I guess. And how, and it's sort of, you know, it knows what it wants to say. It has these emotional moments throughout. Um, but it, it's in a very different art style and it's very unique in that way, I guess, of being a, a feeling not American almost. Yeah. Uh, so I definitely, I recommend Wolf Walkers. That's, that's coming to Apple TV plus, right? Yep. Um, it is currently my favorite animated film of the year so far. Uh, so holding out for soul. Yeah. I I don't know. We'll see. We'll see if soul can beat it. I, um, I did give Wolf Walkers nine out of 10. So damn. Yeah. I did. I did like it more than this one. I also watched Minari. Oh man. I, so there was a, a virtual screening of this and I wanted to get it. So I bought the tickets and then, like, I put all my credit card information in, and they were like, "Oh, we're sold out." And I was like, "Well, what crap! Did you charge me?" And they ended up not. But I was so, I was so upset that I, I like went through the whole thing, and I was so pumped to get to see this because I've heard so many good things about it. But yeah, I have um, to wait. Well, I, <laughs> I won't spoil anything for you, anyway. Yeah, <laughs> definitely recommend that you watch it. Um, it, it is very good. I gave it an eight out of ten, like I gave Trial of Chicago Seven, um, but. I will also say that at the same time, personally, like if I weren't looking at it as a critic and just how I felt about the film, then it it could arguably be my favorite film of the year. So definitely, uh, definitely some one to, to try to see uh, at some point. Okay, sweet. I hyped you up for Trial of the Chicago 7, so now you're hyping me up for Minari. Yeah. Um, really looking forward to that one. Whenever I get a chance to see it, who knows? Man. Yeah, hopefully it doesn't let you down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I actually haven't been watching too much. Somehow I've kind of gotten off watching a bunch. Um, just really slowed down in the last month in terms of watching things. But I did, on Amazon Prime Day, get a whole bunch of these like box set things um, so I got like the 4k releases of the entire dark Knight trilogy for like 20 bucks. And I got all these packaged, um, film sets. And one of them was like the self proclaimed ultimate Alfred Hitchcock film collection. And it comes with 15 of Alfred Hitchcock's films. And I have never seen an Alfred Hitchcock film. So I watched the very first one yesterday. Um, and we chose rope because rope is an hour and 20 minutes so <laughs> i thought it was a great intro i do want to i just think we ought to wait till after you graduate i don't it's only a month janet a month please sorry i personally consider us engaged as of now congratulations david no look you can say yes in a taxi i have a 230 appointment i'm staying right here oh trade you'll say yes i'll see you tonight at brandon's park okay you can say yes, sir, just as well as in a taxi. Goodbye, darling. Bye. That's the last time she ever saw him alive. And that's the last time you'll ever see him alive. What happened to David Kentley changed my life completely and the lives of seven others. It's it's a fantastic film. This is a film. It stars James Stewart, like most Alfred Hitchcock films, mm -hmm. uh, but it also stars John Dahl and Farley Granger. And basically the premise of this is that in the very opening scene, the two men played by Dahl and Granger, they kill one of their friends in their apartment by strangling him with a piece of rope. And then they put him inside of a chest in the middle of the room. And then the rest of the film takes place in this one apartment and they host a dinner party which includes the man that they murdered's parents, his girlfriend, and his best friend. Brett, have you seen Rope? I have not, but I this I know this. This is a very famous, yeah. very famous setup uh, that that people talk about as sort of the I don't know the 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 go to idea of sort of having that dramatic irony of having having the audience know something that none of the characters know. Yeah, the the basic idea behind this whole setup is that this is a sadistic plan by these two guys to pull off the perfect murder. The whole reason that they do this is to see if they can get away with it, because in their minds, 
murder is something that can be done by the select brilliant few and you know if you kill people who are stupid then it doesn't really matter basically and and so that it's that's a very uh randian idea that you know the smartest people can do whatever they want but the whole movie uh i said it's 80 minutes but it's shot like a one take and it's all in real time and i looked it up and it's actually only comprised of 10 long shots so the entire movie is just 10 long shots and then they're stitched together you know by like panning past somebody's coat Mm -hmm. that makes the screen dark or whatever movie magic but yeah exactly (laughs) um but it makes for a really suspenseful film. It's a really engaging film. I, th- I thought it was fantastic. And it's just really fun because the whole time you're watching, you're like, A, are they going to get away with it? And B, do I want them to get away with it? Like, <laughs> Is there some part of me that's like, this would be kind of cool if they just got away with this, even though this is super fucked up. Um, and it's it's fun because the two guys, they're pitted against James Stewart, who is their previous headmaster at school who's who they consider as kind of like an intellectual um equal and so they kind of almost want him to almost find out and they want him to almost see what they're doing to like show how clever they are and uh it's it's just a lot of fun um i I definitely recommend it and especially as a really short film i think it's a great intro to um older films and hitchcock films Yeah, I think that's something I haven't seen a lot of Hitchcock films myself either, but I think that's something that's really interesting about Hitchcock's films is that they tend to make you think about yourself as a viewer when you're watching the film and what you think about what's going on um, on top of just engaging with what's going on. And I can appreciate sort of that level of filmmaking to have you sort of like with with the rear window, the you know the idea of voyeurism, and uh, you kind of have a kind of question because it's very much uh, something that I think everybody does is just kind of people watch it, <laughs> um, and so there's uh, you know I think and then like you said here, uh, do you want them to get away with it? I think the the questions that you ask yourself are almost as um, interesting um, with Hitchcock's films as the questions that you ask about the film yeah the rear window is the next one that uh i want to watch and then north by northwest of course psycho all of those are in the box set vertigo all of those big ones and then of course there's some of the lesser known ones that i'm dying to check out so i i think already it's been worth the like i think it was 40 bucks or something for 15 films so um yeah i mean i'd highly recommend the box set it looks great um for being from the 40s of course and yeah you know i i'm really excited to get to see like all of these films for the first time all right this has been our review of the trial of the chicago seven brett thanks so much for joining me is there anything specific that you want to plug here uh nope i you know i I still don't have anything going on i'm almost finished uh with with semester one of one l year so (laughs) I don't know if I'm going to get back into doing reviews uh, after I'm done. Maybe I'll just relax uh, for a little while. God forbid. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you can you can follow me at Bohan Reviews on Twitter. But other than that, don't expect me to be doing a lot. Yeah. Yeah. All right. The intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at Incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie M-A-R-A pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast at our website, EvergreenPodcasts.com slash Movie-Marathoners. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Overcast, Himalaya, and CastBox. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing. And any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time when I'm joined by my girlfriend Dana to celebrate the Halloween season a bit by talking about the first four Harry Potter films. So I think that's going to be a really fun conversation. It's going to be a lot of nitpicking about movies that we know really well. So stay tuned for that. Until then, remember that life's a marathon, so let's take it one movie at a time. 
Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.